లవింగ్ సాయిరామ్ అండ్ గ్రీటింగ్స్ ఫ్రమ్ ప్రశాంతి నిలయం లాస్ట్ టైమ్ ఐ గేవ్ యూ అన్ ఓవర్ వ్యూ ఆఫ్ ది టెన్ అవతార్స్ ఆఫ్ విష్ణు అండ్ ఆల్సో నేరేటెడ్ హౌ జయన్ అండ్ విజయన్ ది టూ డోర్ కీపర్స్ ఆఫ్ ద లార్డ్స్ అబోర్డ్ ఇన్ హెవెన్ చూస్ ది ఆప్షన్ ఆఫ్ త్రీ బర్త్స్ ఎస్ విలన్స్ rather than the option of 10 births as virtuous men. I explained that Jayan and Vijayan felt that this way they would return faster to the Lord. Maybe you don't agree, but that's the choice they made. And by virtue of the option they chose, in the Satya Yuga, the first of the four Yugas, they took birth as the two demons, Hiranyaksha, and Hiranyakashapu. And also I told you how they were duly annihilated by the Lord, incarnating respectively as the Varaha Avatar and the Narasimha Avatar. The Treta Yuga had set in, this is the one that comes after Satya Yuga, and it was time for Jayan and Vijayan to be born again. And this they did, taking the form of of the demonic brothers Ravana and Kumbhakarna belonging to the clan of the Rakshasas propitiating Brahma with intense penance or tapas Ravana gained the boon of freedom from death by devas or demigods of the heavens asuras, rakshasas etc. Curiously Ravana omitted humans from his list of exemptions Perhaps he felt that humans were too weak to represent any danger. But it was of course the Lord's play, leaving a loophole for himself, for later action. Being evil by nature, Ravana was in no mood to use the various powers gained by Tapas for doing good. Instead, he went on an attacking spree and soon became a much feared ruler. Unable to bear the harassment he inflicted on the three worlds, the devas of the demigods approached Lord Narayana for protection. Yielding to their pleas, Narayana decided to stir out once again from his heavenly abode, Vaikuntam. Unlike earlier, when his incarnations were brief and highly goal-oriented, this time his visit to earth would be more leisurely. That's what he decided. He would descend in human form, indeed as the perfect man, and his agenda would be larger than merely getting rid of Jayan and Vijayan, now born as Rakshasas. When incarnating, the Lord always chooses the time and the place to suit his purpose. This time, he chose to be born as the son of Emperor Dasaratha of Ayodhya. Dasaratha belonged to the Ikshvaku clan, descended directly from the son. He was a good monarch, he was loved by all, and Dasaratha had everything a king could possibly desire except progeny. On the advice of his preceptor, the royal preceptor Sage Vasishta, 
Dasaratha decided to perform a special ceremonial sacrifice or yajna that would confer progeny. The yajna got started and as the religious rites mount to a climax, there emerged from the sacred fire to which various oblations were being offered, a form carrying a golden vessel. Addressing Dasaratha, the form said, Sire, I bring from Brahma, the Creator, His blessings to you and offer this sacred paisam or sweet pudding in this vessel. It is offered to you as prasadam or a gift of God. Kindly distribute this to your wives and they will soon present you with sons. The form disappeared. Dasaratha received the vessel containing the prasadam and did exactly as instructed. And sure enough, in due course, four sons were born to his three wives. Rama, the eldest, was born to the first wife, Kausalya. Lakshmana and Satrugana were born as twins to the second wife, Sumitra, and Bharata was born to the third wife, Kaiki. Following the happy event, everyone was deliriously happy, from the emperor right down to the common people. The princes were most charming, and they were loved by all, Rama the eldest especially. Among the brothers, Lakshmana formed a special bond to Rama, and likewise Bharata and Shatrughna had a special attachment for each other. However, it was not as if there were two groups. They all loved each other immensely, and the younger ones, without exception, were devoted to Rama beyond words and description. One day, when the princes were in their teens, sage Vishwamitra, who was famed for his rigorous penances, arrived at the court of Dasratha, and he was duly received with all honors and courtesy. After the initial welcome and greetings were over, Dasaratha respectfully inquired how he, the emperor, could be of service to the venerable sage. This was the custom in those days. Dasaratha said, O sage, you have only to command, and I would immediately obey and execute the order. Pleased with the offer, Vishwamitra said, O king, I am in the midst of performing some important yajnas or austerities in my heritage Siddhashram. Unfortunately, I am being severely obstructed by several Rakshasas, Subahu and Maricha in particular. I believe they can be held at bay by your sons Rama and Lakshmana. Please send them with me and help me to complete the rituals. Dasaratha was stunned by what he heard and his head reeled. Barely finding his voice, he replied, O venerable sage, it is only appropriate that you seek protection for your yajna. I offer you my entire army for that purpose. Indeed, I shall personally come and supervise the protection. What can two young lads do compared to an army? I beg of you to spare them. Vishwamitra shook his head and said, Dasaratha, 
neither you nor your army would be necessary. Rama and Lakshmana alone are sufficient. Hesitantly, Dasratha again ventured, But, O oh sage, the princes are mere teenagers. Please allow me to substitute for them. Vishwamitra replied, Dasratha, I entirely appreciate your anxiety, but have no fear, because Rama is none other than the Lord himself, and Lakshmana is Adisesha personified. By the way, Adisesha is the thousand-headed serpent on which Narayana rests while in his heavenly abode, Vaikuntam. But Dasaratha would not listen, and once again he offered arguments to claim that Rama and Lakshmana were inadequate for the task ahead. Vishwamitra now became angry, and raising his voice said, Dasaratha, I thought you were a man of honor who never went back on his word. You promised to do whatever I wanted. But when I actually asked you, you are beginning to retract. You are a disgrace to the illustrious Ikshvaku clan. Seeing that matters were getting a bit out of hand, Sage Vasista, I hope you remember he was the court sage, he intervened and persuaded Dasaratha to stand by his word. Eventually, Vishwamitra departed with the two young princes Rama and Lakshmana walking behind him. Now, there is something I must tell you here. You know, this sage Vishwamitra was extremely powerful in the sense he had accumulated a lot of power through his penance or tapas. If he wanted, he could well have reduced the Rakshasas who were bothering him to ashes. But he chose not to. Instead, Conscious of the Lord's game plan, he was content to play a secondary role. The Lord had descended to destroy Ravana, and there was an elaborate preamble to that which could not be short-circuited. And in that preamble, Vishwamitra was expected to play a role, and he was playing exactly that role. Now, all these three people were going to the forest, and although Vishwamitra knew fully well who Rama was, what was happening was, Rama was pretending to be an ordinary prince and kept on asking the sage various questions while they were making the journey to the sage's hermitage, Siddhashram. The rishi smiled and said to himself, Here's the Lord who knows everything and yet he asked me questions as though he knows nothing. Well, I suppose I must keep up the charade. Thinking thus, Vishwamitra narrated many a story, including one about how he himself was transformed from a king to a rishi. In passing, I should mention that Swami once remarked, Man knows nothing and yet acts as though he knows everything, whereas God knows everything, but he pretends he knows nothing. By the time Vishwamitra and his party reached Siddhashram, it became dark and the Rakshasas in the neighborhood came out for their prowls, making hideous noises. Vishwamitra suddenly became worried. My God, he said to himself, here are the demons out to do no good 
and I have two young tender princes with me. What if evil befalls them? Thinking thus, the sage taught Rama and Lakshmana some special mantras which would serve as protection. Swami says that Vishwamitra was a wise one, a jnani, which was why he was able to see the Lord in Rama when he first saw him in Dasarathas court. And yet his knowledge of jnana was apparently somewhat clouded because that same Vishwamitra now thought of Rama as a mere prince who needed protection. Well, if a supremely wise sage like Vishwamitra himself was subject to ajnana or ignorance, then what to speak of lesser mortals like us? Getting on with the story, soon after their arrival at the hermitage, Vishwamitra commenced his sacrifice or yajna. And as it approached a climax, the Rakshasas came in waves to disturb the proceedings. However, Rama and Lakshmana made short work of them. In the end came Subahu and Marisha, and while Subahu was killed, Marisha escaped wounded, which of course was part of the divine plan because Maricha was to play an important role later. The yajna having been successfully concluded, Vishwamitra was very pleased and then he took the princess to the city of Mithila, the capital of the kingdom of Emperor Janaka. On the way, the sage again narrated many stories, especially about Rama's ancestors. He also took care to make Rama step on a particular boulder on the way. Once the stone came into contact with Rama's lotus feet, it immediately transformed into a lovely woman who introduced herself as Ahalya, the wife of Rishi Gautama, cursed to be turned into a stone for unchaste behavior. Vishwamitra then explained to the princess why they were headed towards Mithila. Janaka, he said, was a Rajarishi, meaning that while Janaka functioned as a king, he ruled with complete detachment and in that respect, therefore, he was like a Rishi, which incidentally is also the reason why Krishna praised Janaka much later. The emperor had a foster daughter named Sita, also called Janaki and Maithili. Sita was found as a baby girl in a field by Janaka and she was really a child of Mother Earth. Stored in the palace of Janaka was a mighty bow that once belonged to Lord Shiva. No one could lift the bow, and yet one day when she was a young girl, Sita quite effortlessly lifted the box containing the bow, in order to pick up a marble, which, while playing, had rolled under the box. Janaka was astounded, and he resolved then and there, that when Sita came of age, he would get her married only to a person who could lift the bow of Shiva and string it. A contest had now been arranged to select the right person from the prospective suitors, which was why the sage was taking the princess to Mithila, sage Vishwamitra that is. They all arrived at the court of Emperor Janaka and their party found that the contest was on, the contest to lift the bow and string it. One after another, the suitors tried to lift the bow, 
but all of them failed miserably. On a note from Vishwamitra, Rama approached the box, lifted the bow with absolute ease, and with equal nonchalance, strung it. A delighted Sita garlanded Rama, signaling her willingness to wed him. Janaka was overjoyed, but Rama made it clear that he would not marry without parental consent. Riders were therefore sent post-haste to Ayodhya to give Emperor Dasaratha the happy news and to invite him to the wedding. Dasaratha was overcome with joy. When the young princess left for the forest, he was consumed with anxiety, but now that all had ended well, there was not a happier person on earth. Promptly Dasaratha left for Ayodhya with his three queens and entourage, accompanied by a sizable section of the city's population as well. At times, Swami sings a lilting song describing this scene. At Mithila, not only was Rama married to Sita, but the other brothers were also suitably paired off to the daughters of Janaka as well as his brother. The wedding celebrations were over and Dasaratha's party returned to Ayodhya with four new brides as additional members of the family. Shortly after this, Dasaratha, in consultation with preceptor Vasishta and other elders in the royal court, decided that he would step down from the throne and hand over the task of reigning to Rama. Everyone rejoiced, but the joy was short-lived. Why? That is the story I will tell you now. You see, Dasarata's third wife, Kaikeyi, was one of those who at first felt very happy that Rama was going to be the new king. But soon her thoughts were poisoned by Mantara, a hunchback servant of Queen Kaikeyi. The hunchback had her own grievances and scores to settle and she then reminded her mistress, Kaikeyi, that many years earlier, Emperor Dasaratha had granted two boons to Kaikeyi. But she, the queen, had never cashed them. Mantra said, Oh queen, now is the time to do so. Kaikeyi said, What should I ask for? Mantra said, Well, you should ask that firstly your son Bharata should be crowned king instead of Rama. And secondly, you should ask that Rama must go to the forest for 14 years. Kaikeyi succumbed to the foul advice. Meanwhile, Dasaratha arrived in Kaikeyi's private chamber to convey personally to her the news about the impending coronation of Rama. To his amazement, he found his lovely queen in a disabled state of dress and also in an angry mood. Full of concern, Dasaratha wanted to know what he could do to please her and make her happy. Seizing the opportunity, Kaike promptly demanded that the emperor grant her the two boons promised earlier, and after that she went on to state her demands, exactly as caused by Mantra. Dasaratha felt as if he was struck by a thunderbolt. At first he could not believe his ears, 
and then he reeled under the impact of what he had just heard he pleaded with kaikai he begged with her said please withdraw these unreasonable demands but the lady would not budge instead she taunted the king for trying to go back on his words at this stage dasaratha fainted meanwhile kaikai is sent for rama and when he arrived she told rama about the boons granted to her bharata was to be crowned and rama was to go to the forest for 14 years Rama was just then getting ready for the coronation but when he heard what Kaikeyi said he agreed to her demands without a second thought and he decided he would go to the forest exactly as he had been commanded news about the exile of Rama spread like wildfire there was no shortage of people who advised Rama against it starting with Dasaratha himself and Kausalya This scene in the Ramayana as the story of Rama is called is poignant and also an illuminating one showing as it does the enormous difference between human thinking and the viewpoint of divinity the various arguments offered to dissuade Rama from going to the forest seem to be all very convincing as far as we are concerned but Rama did not accept any one of them he skillfully overruled them to use swami's language whereas all others applied individual discrimination in arriving at their respective arguments rama employed fundamental discrimination that is discrimination based on the knowledge of the atma he firmly declared that the king had given his word that bharata would be crowned and that rama would go to the forest it was the duty of all subjects to uphold the decision of the king if the king's command was to be flouted by his own son how then could one expect the citizens of the land to obey the king doing one's duty was what dharma was all about barely a few hours earlier rama was preparing for the coronation but now without a second thought that same rama was leaving for the forest in a hermit's dress precisely as kaikeyi had wanted although only rama was banished and asked to go to the forest lakshmana and sita followed him out of their devotion for rama okay what about bharata the surprise beneficiary at the time all this drama was taking place bharata along with chatrughna was away in his grandfather's place blissfully unaware of the scheming of his mother and the injustice done to rama by the way it is believed that bharata was in his mother's home place kashmir meanwhile following the departure of rama to the forest dasaratha died of a broken heart messengers were therefore rushed to fetch bharata without unduly scaring him by giving him the bad news namely the news of dasaratha's death When Bharata returned to Ayodhya he knew there was some problem but he didn't know what the problem was and so when he got the news he received a tremendous shock Rama had been banished his father had died and all because of his scheming mother he became furious he raved and ranted against her while she feebly tried to tell him that it was all done 
बिकॉज ऑफ अवर लव फॉर भरता मीन वाइल वशिष्ठाद सेज ऑफ द कोर्ट एडवाइज भरता दैट द फर्स्ट थिंग यू मस्ट डू वॉज टू परफॉर्म द लास्ट राइट फॉर द डिपार्टेड सोल विच भरता डिड इन अ वेरी टेयरफुल एंड एगनाइज मैनर बट वेन द कम्पलीशन ऑफ द ऑब्सिक्वेज सेरेमनीज वर ओवर and vasishta asked bharata to become the king and get crowned bharata flatly refused instead accompanied by ministers of the realm and a good proportion of the citizens of ayodhya he left for the forest to search for rama and to persuade him to return to ayodhya and be king meanwhile rama had established a temporary residence in the forest and one day shortly after that Rama and his party heard a great commotion in the distance climbing up a tree lakshmana saw bharata approaching with a big army behind him hastening down he conveyed the news to rama and then he proceeded to roundly condemn bharata for not only being so mean as to seize the crown but now following rama into the forest with an army so as to attack him and kill him rama who knew bharata better cut lakshmana short and said that bharata was actually coming for persuading rama to return to ayodhya and so indeed it was eyes flowing with tears bharata summoned every argument he could to plead with rama to return but rama was firm in his determination to adhere to dharma ultimately bharata had to bow to rama's decision to remain in exile but at the same time he stubbornly refused to be crowned king in rama's place bharata told rama please give me your padukas or sandals i shall crown them in your place this is called paduka patta vishayam i shall stay in the village of nandigram on the outskirts of ayodhya and live as a hermit even as you are doing drawing authority from your padukas i shall rule the kingdom on your behalf and during your absence exactly 14 years mind you not a day more i shall be keenly awaiting your return if you fail to return after the stipulated period i shall end my life that was the great bharata a mighty empire was offered to him on a platter but he simply refused to accept following the departure of bharata rama and party penetrated deep into the forest visiting many hermitages on the way and calling on many rishis eventually they arrived on the banks of the sacred river godavari where they built themselves a small hut and they began to live in it one day there came near their abode a grotesque female named surpanaka This Surpanaka was the sister of Ravana. She was captivated by Rama's beauty and she approached him and asked him, "Will you take me as your wife?" Being in a playful mood, Rama teased her by saying, "I am so sorry I cannot oblige you. You see I am already married. In fact, that lady over there, she is my wife. Why don't you approach my brother Lakshmana? He is younger than me and what is more important, he is all alone here unlike me." he would be your, your ideal match 
Surpanaga believed every word of what Rama said and so she approached Lakshmana and proposed to him. Sensing Rama's game, Lakshmana decided to join in the fun. He said, Madam, I am but a slave to my brother. Do you want to be the wife of the master or the slave? Just consider. Taking Lakshmana seriously, Surpanaga now went back to Rama and renewed her proposal of marriage. And in the process, she made some denigrating remarks against Sita. Rama now became angry and decided that the teasing was enough. And he ordered Lakshmana to cut off the nose and ears of Surpanaka as a punishment for her effrontery. Disfigured, bleeding and screaming, Surpanaka ran to her brothers Karan and Dushan, pleading that they avenge her mutilation. The brothers Karan and Dushan then went with a large army to attack Rama, but in no time at all, he annihilated the entire pack single-handed. Thwarted in her quest for revenge, Surpanaga then rushed to Lanka with her oldest brother Ravana, the monarch of Lanka. She flung herself at her brother's feet and narrated her tale of vow. She then pleaded with Ravana, to teach the princess of Ayodhya a fitting lesson and as a bait she cleverly included a captivating description of Sita's exquisite beauty. The seeds of lust having been sown, Ravana now decided he must have Sita. To evolve a plan for achieving that, he flew to meet Maricha, his uncle, Having been chastened by his earlier encounter with Rama, Maricha was now leading a pious life and therefore strongly advised Ravana against any such misdeed. But drunk as he was with lustful desire, Ravana was in no mood to receive advice. He became angry and Ravana threatened to kill Maricha if no help was forthcoming. Preferring to die at the hands of Rama rather than the evil Ravana, Maricha then yielded. A plan was thus hatched for the abduction of Sita. According to it, Maricha would assume the form of a golden deer and play in the neighborhood of Sita's abode in such a manner as to attract her attention. Wanting the deer as a pet, Sita would then appeal to Rama to capture it. That was when Maricha would skillfully draw Rama away and deep into the forest. Exploiting Rama's absence, Ravana would go to the hut, grab Sita and fly away. That was the plan. The plan was duly set into motion and sure enough Sita fell for the ploy, pleading with Rama to capture for her the golden deer. Rama cautioned her and said there was something weird and unnatural about the deer because there was no such thing as a golden deer in God's creation. But since Sita was adamant, Rama yielded to her wishes and went after the golden deer. However, before leaving on the chase, he took the precaution of placing Lakshmana on guard, emphatically ordering him not to leave Sita alone under any circumstances. Following the deer, Rama penetrated deep into the forest. He knew it was really Maricha in disguise and so in order to kill him shot an arrow. 
As the arrow pierced his body, Marisha fell down and imitating the voice of Rama cried, Oh Sita, oh Lakshmana, I am dying. Both Sita and Lakshmana heard the cry. While Sita was fooled, Lakshmana was not. He knew that no one could kill Rama, but Sita did not have that confidence. Greatly agitated, she asked Lakshmana to go and immediately investigate. Lakshmana assured Sita that no harm could ever come to Rama, but Sita would not be convinced. Finding that Lakshmana would not budge an inch, she now became angry and accused Lakshmana of wanting Rama to die so that he could have Sita. For poor Lakshmana, those words were like daggers of fire. Unable to stand the taunts and unjust accusations, he finally went into the forest, leaving Sita all alone. Seizing the opportunity, Ravana, who was disguised as a sannyasi or a renunciate, approached Sita as if he was begging for food, grabbed her, put her in his flying chariot and flew away. Realizing finally the trick that had been played on her, Sita wailed and pleaded with Ravana to let her go free. And when he refused to comply, she screamed for help. Swami says that the inner significance of the abduction of Sita is the following. Sita represents Jiva or the embodied souls, meaning you and me. Sita was well protected as long as her attention was focused on Rama, who stands for the Atma or God. But when the attention strayed to the golden deer, which stands for illusory worldly attraction, Sita got into trouble. In the same way, the jiva will face no problems as long as it remains attached to the atma. But if it gets tempted by the transient pleasures of the external world, then pain is inescapable. That is the inner meaning of this story of the golden deer, etc. Let me get back to the story. Sita's cries for help were heard by Jatayu, the king of the eagles, and an old friend of Dasaratha as well. Rushing to the rescue, Jatayu attacked Ravana fiercely, but Ravana got the upper hand and succeeded in inflicting fatal injuries on the bird. Leaving a dying Jatayu, Ravana then resumed his flight to Lanka. Meanwhile, tearing a piece of her sari, Sita wrapped into it some of her jewels and threw the bundle down in the belief that Rama and Lakshmana would one day spot it when they went around searching for her. Hopefully, the bundle would give them some clue as to the direction in which she was taken. Back in the forest, Lakshmana caught up with Rama and immediately he discovered, as he had suspected all along, that the death cry heard earlier was a cruel fake. Rama was surprised to see Lakshmana and sternly asked him why he had left Sita alone and unprotected. Trembling with remorse, Lakshmana feebly tried to explain the extraordinary circumstances that compelled him to disobey Rama's orders. It was now patently clear that the entire episode, starting with the mysterious appearance of the strange deer, was all part of a sinister master plan. Fearing for the safety of Sita, the brothers rushed to the hut, 
only to find it empty. Rama now became crestfallen and inconsolably sad. It was all play acting, no doubt, but the remarkable thing is that the Lord went through every bit of it, even though he was alone in the forest with his only aide, Adi Sesha, by his side, playing the role of Lakshmana. Lamenting the loss of Sita, the brothers then went in search of her, and in the process, they met the dying Jatayu, who they learnt was a great friend of their father. Though Jatayu was in a feeble condition, he gave a graphic the account of his attempt to rescue Sita and then breathe this last. Rama and Lakshmana bade a tearful farewell to the bird, with Rama performing all the due last rites, just as Jatayu's own son would have. The brothers then moved in the general direction pointed out by Jatayu as having been taken by Ravana, and after crossing several streams, rivers, hills, dales, etc., came one day to an ashram or a hermitage, once occupied by sage Matanga. The sage was no more, but residing still in the ashram was an old servant of his, a tribal woman named Sabari. Just before leaving for his eternal abode, Matanga told Sabari, You wait here. One day the Lord will come and give you darshan. After that you, will, you would be liberated. Sabari waited patiently for the day, always keeping the pathways clean and free from thorns, for she did not know when the Lord would come. Also, she maintained a stock of fresh fruits and berries for entertaining the Lord when he came. Sabari did not have the faintest idea of what or how the Lord would look like. And yet, when Rama entered the ashram, she immediately knew it was the Lord. Overjoyed, she welcomed the Lord and offered the fruit she had gathered. Sabari's devotion is an everlasting example of pure bhakti of which Krishna speaks so fondly in the Gita. A simple tribal woman and totally unlettered, she knew nothing whatsoever of jnana, dhyana and all the rest of that high-flown stuff. But she had great love for the Lord, unselfish love, and in the end, that is all that matters. Continuing their journey south, for that was the direction taken by Ravana, Rama and Lakshmana then entered the Kishkinda kingdom, the territory of the Vanaras or the monkeys. Here they encountered Sugriva and Hanuman, also known as Maruti and Anjaneya. Sugriva, they learnt, was in exile, having been driven out by his elder and more powerful brother Vali, as a result of a family misunderstanding. Wali was currently the ruler of Kishkinda, but on account of a curse, he could not enter the premises where Sugriva was hiding. In fact, as the distressed princes were approaching, Sugriva was at first suspicious whether they were the agents of Wali in disguise, and he sent Hanuman, his loyal minister, to investigate. That was how Hanuman first met Rama. Hanuman's entry into the story of Rama is a bit late, but he makes up by playing a stirring and unforgettable role in the latter parts. More important, he would forever be remembered as the supreme example of a Rama Bhakta or devotee of Rama and an ideal servant of the Lord. Of the relationship between a master and a servant, Swami says there are three types. 
the first type understands precisely all that his master wants and uh, even a mere nod is enough no need for elaborate instructions constant supervision reminders etc the second type is a calculative one and does exactly what he is told not one bit more not one bit less and no sense of anticipation and not an iota of service more than what has been ordered the third kind is demonic in thinking he understands his master does exactly the opposite of what he is supposed to do swami adds hanuman belong to the first category after ascertaining who they were hanuman conducted the princess rama and lakshmana to sugriva to the latter they explained that they were in search of sita who had been abducted by ravana listening to the sad story sugriva said o rama one day we saw a rakshasa flying about in a chariot with an abducted woman she was wailing all the time and while the chariot was flying over us she dropped a bundle containing jewels sugriva then fetched the bundles and showed the jewels recognizing them as belonging to sita rama's anguish increased whereupon sugriva promised all help in locating sita and rescuing her in turn rama promised to sugriva to eliminate vali and a friendship was sown sown between rama and sugriva with fire as a witness shortly thereafter rama killed vali and sugriva was installed the king of kishkinda meanwhile the rainy season intervened and the search for sita had to be put off till the monsoon withdrew that happened 4 months later and rama now became impatient to get on with the search for sita but sugriva had in the meanwhile forgotten the promise he made to rama because he now became immersed in kingly pleasures there was then a stern reminder from lakshmana and sugriva promptly became alive to his responsibilities four search parties of vanaras were then organized with instructions to proceed north south east and west and what was their job to search for sita hanuman was the in the group that went south eventually anjaneya's party reached the sea coast and there was no sight of sita yet there they ran into sampati the brother of jatayu this sampati had distant vision telescopic vision you might say and he told the searchers listen sita was in the far away island of lanka that was 100 yojanas away a yojana is supposed to be around 10 kilometers which means according to sampati lanka and bharat were about 1000 kilometers apart with the sea in between and the question now was how to go to lanka and continue the search for sita that was hanuman's problem at this stage an elderly bear in the party named jambavan told hanuman listen you have extraordinary abilities why don't you just leap over the ocean go to lanka and search for sita there accepting the responsibility hanuman meditated for a moment assumed a giant form and then leapt across the ocean constantly chanting the name of rama on the way he ran into various obstacles but they all vanished like the mist before the rising sun which is a reminder to all of us 
that obstacles can occur even when we do Lord's work, but they can invariably be overcome by relying on the same Lord. Well, that's all for now, and I shall give you more next time. Meanwhile, I do hope you enjoyed the story. With the prayer that God bless us all, I sign off. Jai Sai Ram.